this week on the Off the Crossbar podcast, we bring you one of my favorite interviews ever. Delby Palace, a former first overall pick, is now an acclaimed author. If his book, Medicine Game, is not on your wish list, go at it now. We catch up on a month's worth of talking and a lot more, right here on OTCB. I am an My name is Teddy Jenner, and welcome back for another year of National Lacrosse League Action. Matthews, quick stick. Are you kidding me? Why Dylan Ward? I don't believe what I just saw. That's the save of the year right there. Oh, wow. Blair right down the middle, shoots, and he scores! Jenner and I will be with you for the next hour or so. If you want to get a hold of me afterwards, during, whatever, whenever, uh, email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar. Or the show is on Instagram at OTCB Podcast. We are 15 days from Christmas. What a weird Christmas! It is going to be. However, if you are still looking for that last minute item, why not get them some Lax Flash gear? I know a lot of people in my family are getting swag this summer. Go to the Lacrosse Flash website, check out the team store. Some beauty shirts in there, hats, sweaters, hoodies, all that good stuff. Support the fellas, get some gear made by the folks over at lacrosse savage and spoil your loved ones and if your loved one is a reader or if you are a reader please go to amazon right now and search delby palace's medicine game book get as many copies as you can and give them to everybody that you can because we're going to talk to Delby about this book and everything that went into writing the book. And there's a lot in this interview. So just be forewarned. But also be forewarned that the book, I mentioned this a while ago, that the book is for mature audiences. There is some very heavy stuff in this book. Because it's not just a book about lacrosse. And I think that's what makes this book so special is that there is a lesson to be learned for all of us in this, in what life is like being a young person on a reservation and the stresses and the trials and the tribulations that you have to go to. And a lot of times these things, as Delby will say and tell us, are ingrained because of how generational generations of family members have been raised due to the existence of residential schools and Indian boarding schools in North America. 
it is an amazing read, and we will go in depth with it to De- with Delby in a few moments. But again, it has been a while since we have chatted, and a lot of that has been because I just haven't been in the best places mentally. Um, I'm sure most of you know that the Colorado Mammoth and I have parted ways, um, mutually parted ways, but it's not something that I would have liked, but it is what it is in this COVID world that we are living. I have become a COVID casualty. And there is no ill will towards the mammoth. I'm not pissed off. I'm not mad. I'm not angry. Um, It is unfortunate. I absolutely loved everything I was doing in that city with that organization, with that team, traveling with the guys, being around that group. Some of the greatest three and a half years uh, of my life. And there's more to come. I'm enjoying um, not having, no, I'm not enjoying not having a job. But, you know, I've just taken the last few weeks just to kind of sit back, enjoy some family, put up some Christmas lights, get my shopping done. But it has been a really, really tough time also. Many of you know that I do deal with depression. And add on top of everything that COVID has been, and now I'm unable to teach yoga like most of you are unable to do your jobs fully. Uh, The Mammoth News, we had like two weeks of just gray, rainy weather here on the island. It was just miserable. And, And inside, I was miserable. And one of the other things that really helped me kind of battle my darkness and get through all this was reading Delby's book, but was also reading Charlie Raguse's article that he put up on the lacrosse flash website. It also helped listening to guys like Frank Brown. And I'm not taking solace in the fact that these people deal with pain and suffering and racism and depression What helped me is hearing them being strong enough to put out their pain. Because that is not an easy thing to do. To be able to vocalize the agony that you go through as a human being takes a lot of pride, strength, and courage. Because it makes you vulnerable and allows people to see that pain. And their words have really helped me get through this last month. Because I've missed this. I miss staring at my computer, talking into my microphone, and connecting with you all. So I thank you all for reaching out, because your words have really helped me. And the phone calls and the texts and the words of encouragement have meant everything to me. And one of the stories or one of the lessons that we learn from Delby in this interview is that having the strength to talk is is something that takes a lot to find. It's not easy to find. But if you can find it, the next stage is having somebody strong enough, willing enough, and able enough to listen. So yes, we all say many times, and we do this, we reach out and we check in on our friends, but make sure you are listening to what they are saying. Because there may be things underlying in what they're saying that we need to kind of help figure out. And if you give that person an ear and allow them to be open and free of thought and vulnerable, that is where the connection can be made and that is where the help can start. It has been a wild and crazy 2020 And the last month for myself has been even more so. 
But I thank you all for giving me the opportunity to talk every week that I'm able to and to listen to me and my guests as we tell you stories from around the lacrosse world. I absolutely love doing this. I can't wait to continue doing it more. We will continue bringing the show as we move on through the holidays and into what should be the most amazing year ever, 2021. It's going to be the best, right? It has to be. And there's so much to look forward to in 2021. A brand new start, a brand new National Lacrosse League season, brand new friendships, stories, and memories. I look forward to doing all of those with you in 2021, wherever it takes us. If you haven't read Delby's book, be ready for an eye-opening experience. Because we all have images and thoughts of what we think res life is like. But there is a lot more. And hopefully this, will, this book will be the first of many more that I can read about those memories, those pains, and those stories. Because it's something that we don't know a lot about. And we're never taught about. And this is an amazing first step. So please enjoy an in-depth and heartfelt one-on-one conversation with Delby Powers, right here on the Off the Crossbar Podcast. Joined now by the author of the brand new book that, that I finished. Many of you else are, are finishing it, reading it, getting it for Christmas, The Medicine Game by Delby Powers, former National Cross Leaguer, uh, former first overall pick, all rookie team, uh, Six Nations member, uh, but Mohawk, Turtle Clan. You've heard Turtle Clan quite a bit in the news recently with Brendan Bomberry um, and Randy Stotts, but so happy that Delby could join us this week on the show to talk about his new book and life on the res and what it means to him um, and the people that this book will really impact. Delps, how are you, my man? Good. How you doing, Teddy? I'm fantastic. It's been a long time since you and I have caught up since back in our playing days. Uh, how's things? What have you been up to? Uh, well, with COVID going on, just a lot of free time with, uh, you know, used to running around the hockey rinks and everything with little kids, but, uh, you know, they're at home doing homeschooling and stuff. So giving us a little more time, a little more family time together, which, uh, you know, which I don't mind. So, uh, trying to stay busy with other things, I guess, but, uh, you know, going, going well right now, doing well. You, you got four young ones at home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> four all together. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, they, they keep us pretty busy usually. So, uh, but, uh, the two, the two boys that are really close together, just trying to keep them from fighting with each other too much. So, but uh, being the ref every once in a while, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's done all right. It's, it's going good. I think when I first heard that you wrote this book, you know, I think like a lot of people probably thought that, that it's going to be a lacrosse book. It's going to be about the game and it's going to be about, you know, the stories that we have in locker rooms and stuff like that as brothers in the sport of lacrosse. But there is so much more to this book when you first thought about the idea of writing a book, where did it come from and, and, and why now? Uh, well, I originally wrote it as a, as a screenplay. Like, oh. I wrote it a long time ago. I wrote this probably like six years ago. And uh, it was actually like at, at a really low point in my life. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really doing well. And I kind of just got, I kind of just got, I got thinking of like, uh, <laughs> At the time, I missed one of my buddies because he uh, used to be able to cheer me up quite a bit. Uh, he used to make me laugh. And I just, I've always appreciated people that, you know, just, that could just make you laugh. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people like and, or miss too about the locker room, right? When you're playing sports is just being around those type of people that can make you laugh. And uh, at the time, I kind of missed them and I just started thinking about some of the stuff he used to do and then start thinking things when we were kids. And, uh, and I guess stuff just started coming out and, uh, started writing about it so to do the original uh screenplay I probably did it in like a couple of weeks where I was just I stay up like almost the whole night I've always been an insomniac anyways like I'm up all the time I, I stay up late like can't sleep half the time so I get up start doing stuff so it was kind of just one of them things where I just well I might as well 
do something productive while I'm up anyways. And uh, I actually wrote the screenplay and then, um, it, yeah, a lot of it came out, a lot of the, uh, a lot of emotional stuff, a lot of like past stuff that I hadn't thought about in years. And, and then uh, from there, I kind of sent it around to, to see, you know, I, I have no idea if I counted, I didn't know what it was, if it was good or what, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was my first shot at trying to write a screenplay and sent around a few places and, you know, just basically a lot of thanks, but no thanks. So I kind of just sat it on the, you know, put it on the shelf for, for, for years, actually. I didn't, I didn't touch it for a long time and then kind of just picked it back up one day, one day and start kind of chipping away at it, thinking of turning it into a novel. Uh, just because basically um, I started learning about self-publishing and stuff like that. Uh, you could uh, basically get it published without having to send it around, get it rejected and all this stuff like that. So I don't want to have to worry about that. So I just figured I'd self-publish it, do it myself. And then, you know, I just started chipping away at it. And uh, again, I was like, uh, you know, I have, I have kids and was still uh, playing some lacrosse and the kids were playing, doing in their sports and stuff. So it's you know, working full time. So, uh, I just kind of chipped away at it when I could. And, um, it, uh, took a lot longer than <laughs> it should have. Um, I'm a pretty big procrastinator as it is, even though I don't, uh, uh the one time with the screenplay, I actually did a lot of stuff. I kind of, I kind of, uh, kept going on it pretty good, but, uh, with the other stuff here with the, the novel, I was kind of putting it off a lot. So sometimes I wouldn't touch it for months at a time. And then, it, you know, eventually just kind of, uh, slowly finished it off uh, actually when COVID hit and I had a little bit more time it kind of gave me a chance to, to do a little bit more of it so it's kind of how it uh, how it kind of played out anyways when when you go back and you look at at the book was there a character whose story arc was the hardest to write uh I can't I, I don't know to be honest because if, if when you read it, like you kind of get to see a lot of, a lot of emotion from all of them, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of, they, they kind of all hit you. Uh, when, when I start thinking about it, like they all, they, there's, there's something in there with where all of them kind of feel some emotion. So it's kind of tough to, to really write about. I think, uh, you know, when you, when you look at some of the residential school stuff, that was kind of, uh, it, it's kind of gut-wrenching to to think about and to to and to write about and uh a lot i, I wonder like uh, if people are going to think or is that did that stuff really happen but i mean those most of the stuff that you hear or that you read about with the residential schools is all stories that us as kids kind of heard around here like we were told by you know some of the elders that this is the stuff that actually happened so I think it might be kind of shocking to some people to kind of see that kind of stuff with uh, that might have happened in residential schools. So those kind of, those, I guess those uh, characters that, that, that went through the residential school stuff mm-hmm. might have been probably one of the tougher ones to, to, to kind of portray or to, you know, to write about. I think the one thing I noticed that, you know, you kind of, you mentioned, you know, you feel a little bit of emotion from all the characters. And I think, the part of that is because we all knew a weasel. We all knew a Jordy. We all knew a Flint, yeah. like an Andy. We, we all, all had these people in our, fa- whether they're in our families or in our social circles or on our team or we went to school with. I think that was one of the things that really drew me to the book was because I could relate to each one of those characters. I We all had the buddy that just sat in the stands and chirped. We all had the guy that was our driver. We all had the guy that always got in shit and was always trying to start fights. We all had those guys. Was there a guy that you kind of related to the most as you were writing it? Uh, I think the guy that 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 I kind of put a lot of work into is definitely the, that character Weasel. <laughs> uh, a lot of so far the feedback I've been getting, he's been like uh, kind of stealing the show, right? He's been everybody's mm-hmm. favorite so far, and uh, that character is kind of based on, I mean, just like she's i could probably name five or six <laughs> different people that i've you know known throughout my life that kind of get thrown into that mix uh there actually was a kid uh one of my best friends his nickname was weasel so that's kind of where oh. <laughs> where that came from he, and he was just a little guy tiny little multi guy so that kind of how it kind of played out uh he was actually a really good wrestler he's a scrappy little wrestler type kid so that that's kind of how uh how, how they had that character kind of kind of played out and then you kind of threw in more stuff from like from other 
from other people that I've met. So like that character himself could probably, I mean, I, that was probably like five or six different yeah. different people that I've met. So uh, I did put a lot of work in him and pretty much every time I think of something funny, it was usually something to do with that, that character. So it was actually, it was actually pretty fun to write about him and like doing those, all the scenes that he kind of had, you know, most of the time I'm like cracking up laughing as I'm writing it too. So it was actually pretty fun. You mentioned the residential school stuff and the Hazel Blackwater character is obviously a very important character to Tommy's arc as well, but also the overall arc of the story because it kind of brings everything together, but she, she allows us to look at the past and the residential schools. And you mentioned, you guys heard a lot of those stories, but was it, were they conversations that happened quite a bit? Cause I'm sure that, you know, your elders and your grandparents probably didn't want to talk about that stuff a lot. Most of them didn't. You would, a lot of times it would be uh, something that, you know, um, a teacher or somebody or an elder would say that, you know, my grandmother actually told me this or my grandparents told me this, or mm. even just, inter you know, sometimes some people would be interviewed on, on certain things about the boat residential schools. So a lot of it was stuff that, um, that we that us as kids had heard throughout you know throughout our childhood and actually touring uh, a lot of it i learned actually on a tour that i went on at the it's called the mohawk institute what it was actually what uh, the kids called the mushel because they just got fed mush every day right mm -hmm. that's all they ate basically and so i was at the taking the tour through the you know it's called the mohawk institute which is just in branford and it's it's kind of eerie to go through there and then the the tour guide would kind of tell you some of the stories things that happen and like uh, and so as i'm going through there i saw like you see in the book like the four pillars that they talk about in there and you can mm -hmm. see the like markings on it and you can understand and you figure out what you know what it was for and when he tells you this is what they used to do and what it was for and even like uh you know then they show you like the furniture room stuff like that so it it was it's pretty, you know, it was pretty eerie to walk through there um, to see that kind of stuff or just to, to actually see the place. Uh, you'd even see like some some places that didn't touch it where they had the kids had like holes, holes in the wall where they would hide and things in there where they had like stuff that they had left in there, like bubble gum wrappers or little little candy things that they used to have. So it's kind of it, it's pretty eerie to to be actually go through one of these places. And, but it, but it's educational, right? Mm. And it's it's a lot of things that um, obviously people aren't taught. Like even even as part of our on the res, we didn't get taught this in history class, right? It was yeah. basically stuff that we kind of picked up and learned from other people on around the res. And um, it it's yeah, it's pretty surprising to understand that a lot of people just don't know that these even existed, right? Or even or that especially that they existed in the U.S., like they call them Indian boarding schools in the U.S. and in Canada, they just call them residential schools. So it's it's pretty it's pretty shocking when people don't even know that these existed, right? And that that they were, that kids were sent there, basically taken from their families and sent there. So it, hopefully it um, can be a little bit educational, at least, so mm -hmm. people can maybe do their own research to see exactly what happened, uh, and at those kind of places, um, and even. Uh, you know, we hear different stories. I mean, like kids, uh, elders, some of them talk about how like there used to be an empty field behind the, the mush hole. And then every time a kid would run away or a kid would go home to their family, stuff like that, they'd never see, when they wouldn't see the kid again, all of a sudden they'd, they'd be like a tree planted back there. Wow. And the kids start figuring out that maybe they were burying kids in there, right? And then yeah. planting a tree over top of it. And then the one, you know, one elder said that when he left, they said there was just trees everywhere. So, you know, that those are the stories that the kids would, you know, would tell. And, you know, there's no guarantee that that was going on. But kids start figuring that that was that's yeah, what was happening yeah. so when, when they wouldn't see a kid again. You know, that maybe that that's the kind of stuff that was going on. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's tough to hear a lot of times. And uh, but, you know, there's other there's other stories, too. Like this is just the one in Brantford. I mean, there was ones I mean, all over the place. Uh, you hear one, I remember hearing one in St. It was called St. Anne in up by James Bay. Like it's way up there, like Fort Albany, where they actually had like a, uh, what was, they rigged up something that was basically like an electric chair. And if kids were bad, they'd basically electrocute, put them in this chair and electrocute them. Wow. So there's, there's like, there's just all these crazy stories that you hear from, you know, other different places. And, and 
And to be and to be honest, I mean, where we are in Brantford is a pretty, you know, it's um, where you know we're close to we're close to Hamilton, close to Brantford, Toronto. Like it's pretty uh, highly populated area. You get up to places like like uh, St. Anne's and Port Albany. I mean, it's secluded. And like, who's to know what is going on over there ever, right? So some of these, especially some of these places, uh, you hear w worse stories of places like in like Saskatchewan and Alberta where it's really secluded and uh, are really farther in Ontario and Quebec. So uh, you you never know what kind of stuff is going on at these resident at these residential schools, right? So it's just uh, some of the stories that we've heard as kids and that you know elders tell us mm. and people. And so it just, uh, you know, threw a couple of those in there that, that I had heard from as a kid. And then uh, I know they may be tough for people to, to, to read, but, you know, it, it is part of the part of the history of, of residential schools. So it is something that, you know, hopefully people can at least maybe get uh, gets educated a bit on and understand, you know, maybe what what uh, what is meant by when they talk about, you know, they wear the orange shirts to for the residential school survivors, stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, you know, the things that, uh, that maybe occurred to those, to those kids. And when people talk about like generational trauma, like that is something that a lot of people really don't understand. So they think, well, if something happened to somebody's great grandfather, how does it affect, you know, the younger generations? Well, like, as you can see sometimes, or you might read in the book, how they take the kids away and they're basically raised by, you know, raised in a, in a boarding school. Whereas our, in our, in our culture, the way that we're taught to be parents and taught to be grandparents is through our parents, right? They're, that's how we learn is from our parents. So if they're not even taught how to, how to be parents or taught, you know, given love or even, you know, hugged as kids and like they, what the how they come out of there and then they go back to the res and they got these, you know, they have these issues from that they, they picked up while at, uh, you know, at boarding school, you know, being torn away from your family as a kid. I mean, how, I mean, what, what can that do to a kid as you grow up? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you go back, back to the res and then, you know, then people, uh, you know, you have those, you know, where people may turn to drugs and alcohol to, to cope with stuff like that. And then that might even be where you get the, you know, the whole drunken Indian type, mm -hmm. you know, um, stereotype. And then they're, then those people are raising their own kids and they're not showing them the love and affection that they didn't get while they were at boarding school. So it kind of can become a trickle down effect. And that's where we talk about generational trauma. And even being like a, a counselor now, um, when, I, when I do see kids, like when they first come in, like those are kind of the questions, some of the questions we have to ask is like, is there a history in your family of residential school? So if they, you know, if they say, yeah, my grandpa went to residential school. So then we got to kind of think, you know, maybe what has that grandpa been through in his life that may have, you know, passed down to the mom and dad mm -hmm. you know, and then to the kids. So that, that's, uh, that's just one, one thing of like, that can be, uh, that can affect, you know, native kids throughout Canada and the U S and it's just, uh, just maybe some education that, you know, those things did, did happen and they still are being affected. You know, they still have an effect on, on uh, native kids today. So it, uh, it can be eye opening. It can be tough to, tough to read, mm -hmm. tough to, to learn about, but it's something that uh, hopefully a lot of people, you know, maybe have uh, maybe understand when they read a little bit about it. You talked about sort of the, the quote unquote drunken Indian and the lifestyle that often comes with being on a reservation, but it also leads to a lot of mental health issues and a lot of suicide. And, and we kind of feel Tommy kind of going that way a bit in the book as all the bad things start happening to him. You know, Coach Blair dies um, and Andy goes to jail and he loses his girlfriend and he kind of wants to go down that path. You mentioned that this book came at a time where you were going through some mental stuff. How important was it to write these words to help you get through the stuff that you were dealing with? Uh, to be honest, like this was by far the most therapeutic thing I've ever done. Like I've, I've done the, you know, I've been through counseling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but doing this was, was really therapeutic. I mean, it, it helped a lot. Um, not just with the, <laughs> the bad parts, the, yep. the, the depression and all that other kind of stuff that, that I've suffered through, but, uh, even just to laugh, 
like uh, most of the time I was either I was either laughing or crying as I'm writing this thing because <laughs> a lot of it was funny and some of some of the things I'm thinking about um you know I started thinking about people that aren't with us anymore and care you know people that, that, I, that I miss or even family members that I miss right that uh that maybe have suffered through some stuff too so it, it was really emotional but um like I, like I said, it, it was uh, it was really therapeutic to write, and um, it it just it just started to come out and kind of flow out. And um, it, like I said, like I it did take me a long time, so it's kind, I'm kind of glad that it did because mm-hmm. I think of certain things. I might be walking around somewhere and run into somebody and think of something, and then kind of like, all right, I got to I got to throw that in. That so uh, it, it was uh, it was actually pretty cool to to write about, but. Uh, it was really emotional and even the whole uh yeah that stereotype that uh i know i know can can be really you know can be really hurtful for some people mm. but i mean um it's something that a lot of people i think on res really try to to get away from especially like uh, if we're off off the res like they, they try not to like make sure that we don't like drink at you know, lacrosse games and all that kind of stuff, or, you know, tailgating in the parking lot. So I think uh, people do actually now on the res go out of their way to try and, to try and fight that stereotype Mm -hmm. just because, you know, it's, uh, it can be pretty hurtful, but again, that's just six, that's just here that I I know of. And it seems like uh, it's the same way that a lot of other places, I mean, when I talk to the parents from Oksasnikonawage, stuff like that, Onondaga, they, you know, they, they, they try and, um, I try to fight that stereotype because you know it's it can be pretty hurtful and people just don't want it and so they they kind of do the best they can to uh to go the other way with it i guess and um even like with uh even with where i work like we get a lot of guys who who um are you know recovering whether it be alcoholics or you know or drug drug uh drug use alcohol abuse so uh, people are actually, you know, they're learning to to talk about mm-hmm. those kind of things and talk about stuff and understand that maybe they need help. And, you know, it's something that's that stigma, right, that uh, that you're not, you know, I guess you're taught, especially as a guide, that you don't you don't bring it up. You don't talk about it. But it, it's uh, it's something that can really help when you when you do open up about it and realize that it's not it's not, you know, it's not something you're doing alone. A lot of other people feel or think the same way that, that you do. Uh, especially with like mental health stuff. So, uh, and, and, you know, like I said too, there could be, you know, there could be back um, traumas that, mm. that are causing this type of thing. So it's good to get to the root of the issue rather than just, you know, try and mask, mask what's going on. I actually, uh, one of the things that inspired me, I guess, to, to even write at all was um, when I was going through a pretty rough time, my brother, uh, he's a big Theo Fleury fan. So he told me about Theo Fleury's book. Like, and he gave me his copy <laughs> right there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a great book, right? And mm-hmm. so when I read it, I mean, I just started like it was shocking because I just everything that he was talking about, I could relate to because of the stuff that I'd gone through uh, as a kid. So I start, you know, just all the, you know, the emptiness, the, the insomnia, the depression, uh, like all this stuff. It just, you know, suicidal thoughts, and you start. I just started to relate to it and. Uh, so reading his book was really, it was really therapeutic too, just to read it. And then even he had the HBO special for mm-hmm. playing with fire too, like to watch that. So it kind of, it kind of made me realize that, you know, maybe writing it down wouldn't be a bad thing. So kind of, that's kind of how we kind of got going on it. And, um, uh, yeah, I was, I was really thankful to, to read his book and to see the stuff that he's been through yeah. and to see the, how he's, you know, uh, still, he's still battling the stuff that he that he's gone through, but you know he's found a way to to kind of overcome what uh, what happened to him as a kid, and you know, and uh, he he seems like his ways to help people. So I kind of just thought the same, had that same kind of feeling as to uh, our same kind of thought is that you know why not try and help help people who may be thinking the same way. And uh, one of the reasons why I did become a, a counselor, right, a youth counselor, to get uh, just to be that kind of person because I, I think of now, when I was a kid, when I was a young kid, um, you know, I, I, I could have used someone to talk to. I could have used someone just to, to kind of that could relate to the stuff I was going through. So now I'm just, you know, I guess basically trying to, through counseling and stuff, trying to be that, you know, the person that I needed when I was a kid to somebody else. So 
hopefully, you know, it, it, you're not going to be able to, you know, t uh, get through to everybody or, you know, or, or make big changes with everybody, but at least give it a shot and try and see what happens. So if you can even help one person, it's great. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it, um, it's not always going to, it's not always going to work out for everybody, but, you know, at least just be there to listen. Cause that is one thing too, right? It's hard enough to, it's hard enough to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's, but uh, if you are going to talk about it, you got to have somebody there to listen, right? So somebody's got to be willing to listen. So if uh, you know, the more people who are willing to, to listen, I think the, the better off uh, people will be to open up and talk about this kind of stuff. Absolutely, man. That's very well said. Um, when you look, you know, you, you actually, you said it when, when you were younger, you didn't have a guy that you could go talk to. Now you're sort of in that position helping young kids. But when you see guys like, like Randy and Brendan and even Brenner Jacobs, who's got a book out now. Um, and then of course, uh, Frankie Brown, who had that great interview with Devin in the NLL. How proud are you of these young kids now who are sort of finding their voices and being able to kind of help show that next younger generation that it's okay to, to go through that, but we need to be able to still talk about it and be there for each other. And now they're being that listening ear. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, seeing Frankie's interview was, was incredible. Uh, I couldn't be more proud of the kid. And like, the best thing is that they're still young guys that, <laughs> that, uh, and, and they're still, you know, they're young enough where they, they can relate to the really younger kids but they're mature enough that they, they can talk about it and that they can be, you know, the, those kind of people that uh, the really young kids look up to still as they're still playing. So that, you know, the earlier that they can make these decisions and come to those kind of realizations, the better, so that you don't have to go through the, you know, the, the tougher parts to, to kind of learn like, yep. uh, like maybe I did, but uh, it's great to see yeah, Brent, Brendan and Randy Brenner, uh, Frankie, you know, speaking out on these kind of things. And I mean, uh, even like, and then the Thompson boys, I mean, they do yeah, a great of job of, of, you know, helping uh, kids in the community and being, you know, being those people, those people that kids can look up to. And, and, and it's just telling our stories. I mean, I like uh, I, 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 the couple of the new clips I see with Jeremy talking, like just the way he talks. I mean, you can just sit there and listen to him, right? When yeah, he talks, absolutely. talks about the story of lacrosse. I mean, that, that's great stuff. And I think that uh, the more kids, you know, hear those kind of messages and then now with social media, I mean, more kids can hear that kind of stuff. So it's, it's good. I think it's great that they're, uh, they're, you know, using their, their platforms of social and social media to, to speak out and, you know, maybe raise some awareness and educate a little bit, especially on things like residential schools and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and the, you know, the healing aspects of lacrosse, I mean, growing the game, I mean, they're doing a great job of it. So, you know, I couldn't be more proud of those guys. You said in the book, there's a line, I think it's something like, there is no off season in lacrosse. It's just all, you could pick up a ball and throw it against the wall and that's lacrosse season. And it's, it's something that allows us to just get our feelings out and get our emotions out. It's just the natural relationship we have with the game. And, and I know the indigenous people's relation goes far beyond that of my relationship with the game of lacrosse what are your first memories as a young boy about the game of lacrosse? Um, my first memories are just watching my dad play. I mean, I'm watching, you know, uh, at the time it was, uh, there was senior B, the Oshwegan Warriors and then they had the Brantford Wolves. So the, that was, you know, that was the big time lacrosse for us when we were kids. We didn't have senior A uh, on the res yet, but I mean, just watching, just watching those battles and, uh, you know, being at a, a sold out, uh, which is now the, you know, Gaylor Palace Arena. Uh, it was, you know, it, it was pretty intense. And, you know, as kids, you just wanted to, you know, you just wanted to be out there eventually someday. And uh, even this, the battles when a ball went over, like they used to give like two bucks if uh, oh, bring the ball back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th those are some of the funnest things that kids that we can remember as kids, mm -hmm. right? Like, it'd be like a, you know, like a 10 car pile up, basically kids <laughs> battling for a loose ball to get, get a toonie to, you know, get two bucks to take it back to the penalty box. So, yeah, right. You know, we're missing half the game because we're still fighting. Over <laughs> but that's kind of, that's just kind of the fun stuff, right? Like hanging out at the arenas and, you know, having fun. But uh, yeah, that, those are some of the earlier memories I remember. And then, um, of course, growing up, I mean, um, kind of lucky that we weren't into uh, the way I look at it anyways, that we didn't have um, so much into cell phones and stuff mm -hmm. because we still just played 
back here in lacrosse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that was basically, um, I mean, it was basically like you'd read in the book, like six of us just constantly playing backyard lacrosse like all summer, right? That's basically all we did. And we didn't look at it as practice. You just, that was fun. That's That was the fun part. You know, whether it was a few fisticuffs or, the, you know, a few tilts that happened, like that, you know, that was part of it too. But it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun just doing that stuff and just being a kid and just, you know, not having to, uh, you know, especially during, you know, during the, during the summer break, but just, just being a kid and having fun and having a blast with your buddies. I mean, that, that was one of the, one of the main parts that I wanted to bring out in the book because it's just how much fun we used to have as kids. Right. And, uh, that, that's, uh, that's something that was, uh, that I thought of a lot that, that really yeah. brought out a lot in the book. It's just, uh, just being a kid and playing backyard lacrosse again. I mean, I, you know, used to see it all the time and like see less of it now, but kids still, it's nice when you go, you know, when you're driving around the res or something, you just happen to pass a bunch of kids out there playing lacrosse. Like, yeah. you know, it's good. Like good to have to see them outside playing, having fun, just being kids again. So yeah, um, so that's uh, some of my earlier memories are those. And yeah, uh, absolutely. to be honest with uh, when I was a kid, um, it was kind of either um, lacrosse or fastball. We used to, around here, the Raz, like, especially on Six Nations or even just Native people, which, which a lot of people find surprising. They think just um, somebody's Native in Canada, they, they, you know, they're kind of drawn to lacrosse, which is basically not, not true. We, um, probably one of the bigger sports among Native people is fastball. So it was kind of either, I remember as a kid, I was trying to play both. I was begging my parents, I want to play fastball and I want to play, uh, and I want to play lacrosse, but I had to kind of choose one or the other. But at the time, like when, when I was a kid, um, we didn't even have enough for a paperweight team. There was only like four of us. So we had to move out and play tight. Right. Mm. So I was like four playing against like, I don't know, seven, eight year olds. <laughs> so it was like, so yeah, I think I played like four years of tight because we didn't have a paperweight team. Right. So, we didn't, then that's how it was. Like we didn't even have enough kids and that's because so many kids were playing, were playing fastball. So, uh, throughout Canada, that's probably one of the bigger, biggest sport is like, it's amongst, uh, first nations people. It's, you know, hockey and hockey in the summer or hockey in the winter. And then probably fastball more than lacrosse actually wow. in, uh, in the summer. So like the native Canadian fastball championships are huge. Like there's some pretty good, pretty good fastball player, baseball players. So, and that is one thing too that I've never ever um, I, I thought about it because my my grandma used to tell me that her the one thing that she liked about um, residential schools they let her play baseball and that's where she learned to play baseball. Wow! So she loved it and and she even when she came when she you know left residential school she started her own baseball team. There's she had a ball diamond across the street like she basically had her own had her own team everything right so but. Everything with residential schools always seems so um, structured to take away culture and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, it almost makes me wonder if uh, they allowed them to play fastball and baseball, but not lacrosse, because lacrosse was a medicine game. They weren't allowed to play that at residential school because it was, a, you know, it was a culture. They wanted to take the culture away. So I'm just. It was kind of always. I kind of was always curious about that. If they wanted the boys to fall in love with fastball rather than lacrosse to, you know, so that takes away a part of the, the culture as well. Because when I was a kid, I remember like these fastball tournaments on, around the Reds, there's ball diamonds everywhere and everybody's play, play baseball. So basically there was a time when, you know, baseball was way bigger on the Reds than lacrosse. So it was kind of like uh, only a few families that played lacrosse back then in like the seventies and eighties, I guess in the sixties, like the Squire boys, they all, they all played lacrosse uh, like Cap Ombre and his brothers and family. Uh, um, Uncle Ross, Wallace, guys like that. It seemed like there was only like certain families, the Thomases too, that, that played lacrosse and everybody else was always playing baseball. So there was a time when it seemed like lacrosse was kind of dying out because we didn't even have, we didn't even have our own rink here yet, right? We didn't yeah, have yeah. the GPA, we didn't have nothing. So it was always, they'd have to play in like Brantford or Hamilton or Hagerville, somewhere like that. So uh, yeah, there was a point when like fastball, baseball was actually much bigger on the res and throughout Canada it probably still is I mean they, when you go to a lot of First Nations places that's what they play in the summertime is, is baseball like the windmill type right and I think yeah. they they would play that there because uh, guys and girls could both play at the same time they just play against each other yeah. so that's what my grandma said that she did like about residential schools 
learn how to play fastball. So I guess but, that, uh, I guess you know that that's an opportunity for for more Olympic exposure. You're gonna have a, a damn good fastball team and a damn good uh, a baseball team. But you had a chance to wear the Golden Eagle for um, the U19s, the men's team, indoor and outdoor. What would it mean to you? To, to others that have represented uh, your culture um, in the Iroquois and the Haudenosaunee, what would it mean to see uh, the flag walked into an Olympic stadium? And what oh, effect man, do you think, what effect do you think that would have? That would be intense. I mean, that, that, that would be crazy. I mean, I, I mean, think of the, I mean, the, the human interest story that that would be right. If at the Olympics, if uh, you know, if, if we were ever allowed to, to play uh, in the Olympics, um, Again, I guess that's the whole IOC thing, right? I guess that becomes a whole nother issue if they're going to, you know, are they going to recognize uh, the Haudenosaunee as, a, as, an, as an independent sovereign nation, right? That's the whole other fight. Uh, but it'd be great to see lacrosse there uh, to begin with. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> it'd definitely be a huge victory. I mean, that, and the fight that they have already done, they, they went through in the 80s, even just to get the Iroquois Nationals playing at the world championships. Mm -hmm. I mean, to finally see him at the Olympics, I mean, that would be a huge victory that, you know, hopefully a lot of the people who, who started that fight in like the eighties and whatever can, can see that and are still around to, to be able to see that. So hopefully that can happen. You know, I, <laughs> I wish that I could be a part of it. I wish I was still playing when all that <laughs> right. stuff happened, right. but, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, hopefully the young guys, you know, can, can, uh, can get that opportunity to just to even, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to stay in an Olympic village, right? Right. <laughs> oh, man, like that, that's got to be something else. So uh, hopefully that, that experience, hopefully those guys can get that experience and, uh, you know, you know, something that they can talk about to kids on the res and, the, you know, kids all, from all over, you know, First Nations communities can really shoot towards something, seeing that, you know, that there's an opportunity to play in the Olympics. That'd be, that'd be something else. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it works out. Hopefully it happens. I mean, uh, it was great seeing what Ireland did with already with the uh, with the yeah, world yeah, coming yeah. up in Alabama. So uh, I would love to be able to go to either you know both <laughs> right? just to watch. I mean, yeah, no uh, doubt, no doubt. I've um, never got to do that as a yeah. you know as be a spectator, so it wouldn't I wouldn't mind doing it once in a while. Absolutely. Um, what's the first concert you're going to when all this is over? Oh, geez. <laughs> I, I was, I've already had like two that I had to cancel. Uh, I was all set to go to a couple, one in Ohio, one in New York. So uh, first concert, geez. I don't know. I've been like, I've been digging the country ones, actually. I've yeah. gone to see John Party a few times. I saw Luke Combs in Buffalo. Nice. He was great. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing, uh, I like Riley Green. I've been listening to his stuff quite a bit lately, so. Uh, I've been digging the country lately, but I don't, I don't mind. Uh, oh, geez. The one that got canceled too. We were going to go see the black crows. Oh. That, that was coming right up. And uh, what is the other one? Pearl jam was coming to Hamilton. Yeah. So yeah, you know, Pearl jam would be one. If they reschedule, if they're in Hamilton or Toronto, uh, if the black crows come back around again, I'd love to see them. So, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, to be honest, uh, there's, there, I mean, I got a whole list. Of <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Just anything. I want to do anything yeah. outside of my house. Yeah with other people um yeah. where can people get the book I, I got my copy i got others uh down the line but uh where can people find it uh they can find it on amazon right now and uh i've, I've got a bunch of printed off now that i'm getting at uh like local stores in the res so they can find them on the res too but uh trying to get them in uh like other bookstores so hopefully hopefully somewhere like Kohl's or indigo can, mm -hmm. can carry it too but then uh, that, that, that's a work in progress so right when you when you self-publish, you kind of got to do that stuff yourself. So Absolutely. we'll see if uh, hopefully they can get into the bigger bookstores. But right now, if uh, if anybody uh, needs it, they can pick it up on Amazon. Well, man, this has been a fantastic, Jack. Great catching up. I absolutely love the book. I'm going to read it again uh, for mature audiences only. Absolutely. Uh, but congratulations, man. This is a great success. And I, I hope you see a lot of good things come from it. All right. Thanks a lot, bud. There he is. That's Delby Palace, author of the book Medicine Game. Available on Amazon.com. Um, I have multiple copies already, so uh, hopefully you can get there and on on the website and get yourself some books for Christmas. I hope you were able to take something away from that interview. Even just one little piece of information means that the conversation did its purpose, and we keep harking back to the words 
from the Black Lives Movement of having difficult conversations. And there are times when we are talking to black, indigenous, people of color, where there's a question on our mind that we're not sure if we should ask because we're not sure how it's going to be taken. Not And not in a racist tone. Maybe it's a bit of ignorance, but, you know, to ask a person, you know, where does the drunken Indian culture come from? Or the stereotype come from? You know, you kind of feel like you're giving a you're giving offense to them. But we need to find out that that's not just because they're on the reservation or because they're native Indians. It's because of the long-rooted struggles that their people and their ancestors went through, being ripped away from their families at a young age and being put into these residential schools or Indian boarding schools and having everything done to them to rid them of their Indian culture and make them more American. For example, listening to him talk about why softball and baseball is so prominent in Native American culture, in Native Indian culture, it's because when those young kids who are now parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were at these residential schools. They weren't allowed to play lacrosse. They were taught the American pastime of baseball slash softball. And I never knew that softball or fast pitch or baseball or any of the ball sports were so big on reservations. But a lot of that comes from life in a residential school. And a lot of the drinking comes from people trying to bury the memories of the pain and struggle and agony that they went through as young kids at those schools. And the horrific thing that people did to them. What I found even more amazing, I guess, is that even Delby as a young person, wasn't really taught the history of his people and of residential schools. The stories were told here and there, like he said, but it wasn't something that they were willingly openly talking about because it brought back such painful memories. And then to not have it taught in schools is just unfathomable nowadays. To where we are, and the effect that we had on an entire culture of people in North America, the earliest ancestors of our land, is still just shocking to me as I find out more and more. So I hope this conversation has opened up your eyes to what is out there and the pain and struggle that our native Indian brothers and sisters have gone through. And I can't thank Delby enough for everything that he has done for our game of lacrosse, for his own people. And in writing this book, I would love to see it eventually get to be a movie because I think it would be absolutely phenomenal. And I appreciate the work that he's doing in his own territory as a youth counselor. I appreciate the work that Brendan Bomberry and Randy Stotts and all of the other young indigenous men and women that are now understanding that they have a voice and they can be a role model and a leader and someone to look up to for these young kids. As Delby said, he needed that when he was going through his tough times and his dark times and the struggles. And you feel all of that in medicine game. You can feel the pain. You can feel the sadness. You can feel the agony that 
the main character goes through. And I think that's one of the great things that books do. They connect you to the people in the book. And you can see so many of your friends, teammates, past, present, and future in this book. Like I said, everybody has a weasel. Everybody has the teammate that is just better than everybody, but kind of goes astray sometimes. And the hard worker and the jokester and... We all have those people. So we can relate to an extent. So I don't want to give the whole book away because I probably could give you an entire book review. But like I said, this is um, a very important book for a lot of us to read. And I, and I hope you all can take the time, uh, get your hands on a copy. If you need to borrow mine, I, I will lend it to you. Um, but I hope that you can sit down, listen to the words that are in the book and enjoy it because I certainly did. And again, I will be reading it over and over again because there are more things to take away from that book than I did in my first run through. So um, thanks to Delby for, for giving us some time to chat um, about the book and about his experience because I know it couldn't have been easy, but um, it is a great, great monumental success for Delby to get to this point um, with his book after everything that he's been through, um, and, and a courageous story. So thank you to Delps. Um, a couple of things we've missed over the last month, not a whole lot. Um, there weren't really any major trades and I'm sure that most teams are kind of just waiting to see what's going to happen as we get to 2021 before any major deals really start happening. Um, the Riptide traded John Rannigan and a fourth round pick to the wings in exchange for Matt Mariner and a second round pick in 2023. Uh, the Roughnecks signed Reese Callies to a two-year deal. Ethan Schott, uh, one-year deal with the Riptide. Matt Gilray, a two-year deal with the Nighthawks. Uh, and then Joel Tinney to San Diego in exchange for Johnny Pearson. And Austin Shanks finally pens a three-year deal with the Thunderbirds. So that's sort of the last month that we've missed since I have taken a bit of a break. The other news, obviously, was the newest lacrosse team in the National Lacrosse League that will start play in the 21-22 season, and that is Panther City Lacrosse Club. I love the logo. I love the colors. Sure, PCLC, you know, it's kind of soccer-ish, but you know what? There always needs to be a first. Now, I'm not saying every lacrosse team from now on that's coming into the NLL is going to be something-something lacrosse club or an innate name with... Uh, moniker you know i don't think this is going to be the norm of panther city lacrosse club future named teams i think it's different i think it can brand out to a lot of different people but you know what the original six teams in the national hockey league all had s's on the end of their names and now we have teams that don't have s's and teams that have names that end in z's and x's and so if you're super frustrated and upset with a name, get over it. There are worse things that franchise could have picked. But you know what? They're making it their own and they're making it relatable to their fans in their market. I, I saw somebody somewhere say that um, if, I, if it wasn't for Google, I wouldn't know Fort Worth was called the Panther City. Well, nobody would have known that. That's... Nobody, there's not a lot of people probably know that Victoria's the Garden City or Portland's the Rose City. Like, we all have, our cities all have these little names that millions of people don't know about. So, to create a bond with their people and their town folk and their local fan base, I think is brilliant. Because the team is for them. They'll draw fans from elsewhere. But Panther City Lacrosse Club, is in Fort Worth. It's for the Fort Worth people. So why not make a team name that they can associate associate with and rally behind? So um, Greg Bibb and Bill Cameron, uh, the ownership group out there, along with Bob Hamley, um, got a lot of work ahead of them. Um, it sounds like they are going to announce a head coach sometime in the new year. 
Um, and then they just start putting things in place. They've got a long time before they start. Pretty much 12 months, essentially, possibly, depending on when a 21-22 season gets underway. But if you think about it, they still got a lot of time to put things in place and start to plan. But it'll be very interesting to see which route they go. So they got a name, they got colors, they got a logo. Now they just have to work on the finer details of a head coach and a coaching staff and then start working and looking towards an expansion draft, which could be pretty interesting. Because however this 35th NLL season plays out, will be very interesting with the draft picks, with college kids coming in. I I have no idea how the 35th National Lacrosse season is going to look like. And the biggest concern is, will it still even be able to happen? Obviously, we know what's going on with COVID. There's talks of rolling out the vaccine, yada, yada, yada. I'm not here to politicize on all that. I'm just saying that Who knows by the time we get to April if people are allowed to even cross the border. And then what do we do from that point on? So I look forward to it. April is still in our sights. It's still a stake in the ground. But we still have to get there. Interesting news uh, that was posted by Chrissy Stremski on the interwebs today that the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights has said that he has been working on bringing a National Lacrosse League team to Vegas. Bill Foley, quote, I am working on an indoor lacrosse team to come to Las Vegas. We can start playing in the new Henderson Arena probably in 2022. Very interesting. There have been rumored reports, obviously, that the NLL wants to go back to Vegas. It's been confirmed by the commissioner, Nick Sakevich, on multiple podcasts that they do have a strong interest and groups interested in going there. This is the first group to sort of come out publicly and say they're trying to bring an NLL team to Vegas. However, that's a starting point. And the commissioner has also been teasing that there is a possibility that they announce two expansion teams during this extended offseason. And if you know, what he said there is start in 2022, which would mean, if you kind of put things together, is that it sounds like if they are the next team, that they would be two years from now. So not the 35th, not the 36th, but the 37th season in 22-23. So if you're Panther City, maybe you're thinking, okay, we may not have a second expansion team to combat with during our expansion draft. And if you're the other 13 NLL clubs, you're like, oh, great. I'll only lose one player in expansion draft instead of a possible two. So, kind of works out for a lot of people in that way. And Vegas would work out for a lot of people, especially if we eventually get into lacrosse betting, which BetMGM and the National Lacrosse League are working towards doing. I think that's it for today. I can't think of anything else to regale you with. Um, I hope you have Christmas lights up. I hope you're enjoying some baking with your mother if you can, because I had a great day with Molly Jenner the other night. Uh, we made some ginger snaps. We made some butter tarts. Listened to some Christmas tunes. And if you can, where you can, please spend time with your family. I know through all the COVID restrictions and regulations, that may not be easy for everybody. Even if you can do it through a window, go see your family, see your mother, hug your mother, tell her you love her. Tell your friends you love them. Tell your enemies you love them as well. We can all use some happiness, some joy, and some warmth during these final few weeks of the worst year in recent memory. Thanks to Delby Palace, as always, for giving us his time and his words in his new book, 
medicine game. Go get yourself a copy. Thanks to you, the listener. My name is Teddy Jenner at Off the Crossbar at OTCB Podcast or email me teddy.jenner at gmail.com. You still need swag for Christmas? Lacrosseflash.com. Check out the team store. Big team guy. Oh my goodness. Benny and the Jets. You name it, you can get it. It's all on Lacrosse Flash TV. Until we speak again, stay safe and be excellent to each other.